Well, good evening, and uh, thank you for coming, and welcome. I'm Colonel Stu Elgison, the president of Valley Forge Military Academy, and I want to say welcome to everyone who's come here tonight. I want to uh, recognize on the eve of Veterans Day all the veterans who are here in attendance. If you could just please stand, it'd be great. Thank you. Thank you. Valley Forge has been here for 96 years. Um, and when I received a phone call last July asking if we wanted to host this awesome event, I absolutely jumped at it. Uh, with not only this town hall being about uh, veterans and, and what they can do for the community, um, the timing being on the eve of Veterans Day and knowing that we've had thousands of graduates who have served, are serving, and are going to serve in armed forces, it was a no-brainer. So I wanna thank the foundation for choosing us and coming here today. We couldn't have been more honored uh, to have you here, so thank you. I also wanna recognize uh, our Pennsylvania State Legislator, uh, Lisa Borowski, who's here. Thank you, Lisa. And our different <laughs> and our Tradifferent Township Supervisor, Mr. Murph Wasaki. Murph, thank you. <laughs> and before I introduce this awesome panel, I would be remiss and probably drummed out of the Marine Corps if I didn't say. Happy 248th birthday to any Marines out there. Do we have any Marines? Please stand. Any? There we go. All right. <laughs> 248 years ago today, the Marine Corps was formed in a tavern called Tun Tavern in downtown Philadelphia. How appropriate. So happy birthday, Marines. Now, to the panel, we have U.S. Representative Chrissy Olan, an Air Force veteran, engineer, entrepreneur, educator. She is, represents the sixth, Pennsylvania 6th District in Congress. She grew up in a military family. She earned her engineering degree from Stanford University with an ROTC scholarship and launched her service in the Air Force and Air Force Reserves and she later earned a master's in science in technology and policy from Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT. You're a little underachiever there. <laughs> For our cadets who had the pleasure and honor to hear the general, Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster, United States Army, um, retired, is a full, and Michael, a Jimmy senior fellow at the Hoover Institute, Stanford University, Upon graduation from West Point in 1984, General McMaster served 34 years as a cavalry officer in the United States Army. He's a retired Lieutenant General. After serving, he retired in 2018 after serving as the 25th uh, Assistant to the U.S. President for the Department of National Security Affairs. He holds a PhD in military history from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill 
He's an author of two books. He's a father. He's a war hero. And he's also a 1980 Valley Forge graduate. So welcome back, sir. Next panelist, Megan Andros, Senior Program Officer at the Heinz Endowments and is responsible for the Foundation's Veteran and Military Families Initiative. Megan is served for five years as an ordinance officer in the Army's 1st Cavalry Division. She's a, veterate, she's a veteran of Operation Iraqi Freedom. She graduated from the U.S. Military Academy at West Point with a B.S. in International Law and completed the Master's of Public Management program at Carnegie Mellon University's Heinz College in 2018. Please welcome Megan Andrews. Dave Foster is the, is the founder and CEO of BDP Impact Real Estate, a social impact real estate investment and development company headquartered here in Philadelphia with projects across the country. His military service includes active duty as an infantry officer with the 101st Airborne Division, had tour in Afghanistan and posting at the Pentagon. Dave received his BA from Washington Lee University and his law degree from the University of Pennsylvania Law School. Please welcome Dave Foster. And last but not least is, our, is tonight's moderator. Uh, I don't know if to call you doctor, lieutenant colonel, or put them all together, but uh, another, another one. Lieutenant Colonel Jacqueline Snyder, PhD, is a U.S. Air Force Reserve and is a Hoover Fellow at the Hoover Institution and director of its Wargaming and Crisis Simulations Initiatives, and is also an affiliate with Stanford Center for International Security and Cooperation. Before beginning her academic career, Jacqueline spent six years as an Air Force officer in South Korea and Japan and is currently a reservist assigned to the U.S. Space Systems Command. She has a BA from Columbia University, an MA from Arizona State, and she earned her PhD from George Washington University. Please welcome our moderator and the whole panel, please. Thank right, you. Well, thank you so much for that extraordinary welcome. And in general, this extraordinary welcome to be able to be here at Valley Forge Military Academy. This is the second stop on our nationwide tour uh, to talk about the post 9-11 veteran generation. Uh, so what are we doing? Why are we doing this? Well, I am a post 9-11 veteran. My husband's a post 9-11 veteran. And I had the honor of sitting on the selection committee for a fellowship that we have at Hoover that Megan and Dave are part of, which is the post 9-11 veteran fellowship program. And as part of that selection committee, I started thinking about what does it mean to have served after 9-11? What does this generation of veterans that spans over two decades of military service, what do we have in common? And as we kind of come to the end of this generation and we start maturing and kind of moving back into the civilian world, what is going to be the legacy of this generation? And so that's what this town hall series is all about. It's about telling the story of these, these veterans. Um, and in the process of telling that story, I hope what we find is what 
we on the panel have in common, but also what us on the panel share in common with you. And the hope is that at the end of this town hall series, we realize how much our veteran communities and our civilian communities actually have in common. Um, and that we'll be able to kind of build our civil society, democracy, and the force of the future one veteran at a time. So with that kind of like large idea, uh, I want to start by really telling the story of these four extraordinary veterans. Um, and as the alum, HR, I want to start with you. And, and the oldest, super old then. Well, well, that is an interesting thing about this ge this this generation of veterans. We 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 actually have some uh, Gen Z in the post nine eleven veterans, so it spans the whole uh, multiple uh, generations. Now, I understand your your father was also a veteran, and I think kind of interesting. He's a veteran of a war that has been was kind of forgotten in American contemporary politics for a while. Um, but I was wondering how his experience in the Korean War and growing up with a father who's a veteran influenced your decisions to join the Army. Uh, well, it, he certainly had a huge influence on me. My, my dad uh, volunteered to serve at age 17, uh, got his parents to sign the, the paperwork and, and wanted to get to the Korean War to, 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 to fight uh, alongside his fellow Americans. And, and he deployed there, you know, uh, as, a, as a private uh, and, and left as a sergeant first class. Uh, and he, uh, he then was a first sergeant for a basic training company uh, in, at uh, Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, but then decided to get out of the Army, you know, marry my mom, but he stayed in the reserves. And there used to be a reserve unit, I don't know if everybody remembers this, of the older guys down there, uh, a reserve infantry unit in Germantown, uh, in, German, in the Germantown neighborhood of Philadelphia. And so he was a first sergeant for an infantry company there when I was growing up. And then during the Vietnam War, he got a direct commission to captain and took command of the same unit he was a first sergeant in. But as a little kid, I was there for all the Veterans Day parades, but also he put me in the back of his Jeep and we went to Fort Indian Town Gap and I saw this training. <laughs> he probably wasn't supposed to do that. But I got to, I got to see, see, so I was exposed to it. But also my mom had a big influence because she instilled in me some intellectual history, uh, intellectual curiosity and a curiosity about our history and our military history. So when we took family vacations, you know, we went to, you know, Gettysburg. <laughs> we did. And, and, uh, and so I had the sense of history as, as well. So both my parents had a, had a big influence on my desire to serve. And yeah, I wanted to do it since I was like three. I begged my parents to, to let me go to Valley Forge, right? I was going to go to LaSalle uh, uh, High School here. And, uh, and I said, God, please let me go. And it was a lot more expensive than LaSalle, actually. And, uh, and, I, and they, they allowed me to do it because I saw this as my first step in being able to serve as an officer in the Army. So I think one of the similarities that, that you share with Dave is both of you kind of knew from the beginning that you really, really wanted to serve. Dave, you have an interesting story because you uh, were at a university that did not have ROTC. And so you could have just like done four years of fun, normal college and then, you know, done OTS. But you did something special in order to make sure that you would have that fun ROTC experience. Right. Um, am I on here? First of all, let me just say a, a big thank you for, for having us here and, and really just want to acknowledge my family and, and so many folks who have been part of this journey, which is what we'll, we'll talk about here. It, it's not just those of us on stage, but, but those who 
uh, were along uh, supporting us all the way along the way, including my parents I was growing up and, and thinking about coming from a background, a, a different kind of service, but starting as school teachers and a, a real uh, history of, uh, of service in the community and in the church and so forth. Uh, for me, wanting to serve in the military, I, I can't even pinpoint exactly where it came from. I was an athlete growing up. Uh, I loved playing sports. I loved being part of a team, and I wanted to serve. And it felt like leadership and service of the kind that I wanted to do really pointed me in the direction of going to the military. And so newspaper interviews made when I was in high school and so forth were, yeah, I'm going to go to the military and, and then uh, onward from there. Uh, I looked at West Point. It seemed like a place with way too many rules for me. Uh, although I do have to say, knowing General McMaster now, some of the biggest rule breakers I know, people who have gotten stuff down outside the rules, uh, did come out of that institution. Uh, was recruited to play football at Washington and Lee University. Went there without a specific plan to join the military. And about halfway through my time in college, as I was starting to look ahead, uh, I realized, all right, I've got to find a way in here. What are we going to do? Uh, looked at ROTC as an option. It wasn't there at my school. And uh, I said, all right, let's figure out how to make this happen. So we got the president of Washington and Lee University uh, to sit down. The superintendent of Virginia Military Institute was, was right next door, come up with an agreement and, uh, and bring the program to WNL, which is where it belongs. And I think that that, to me, is, is really sort of a big part of, of what I hope we'll get out here tonight. And that is, you know, sort of Late 90s, we, ROTC disappeared from a lot of campuses, and we really narrowed the funnel of uh, individuals coming into our military and widening that as, and making it as broad as we can. As many opportunities for different kinds of people to come in is really important. 25 years later, I was just down on campus. ROTC is alive and well at Washington and Lee. I'm very proud of that. And, uh, you know, thankful for the opportunity that, that I got to serve as a result. Well, I don't know if y'all noticed, but I accidentally put too many army, army people on the panel. But it's impossible. <laughs> but Representative Houlihan and I are going to hold it down for the Air Force. Um, but it seemed like looking at your past history, you, you, your kind of your family history was in the Navy. Why did you choose the Air Force? How did you end up in the best armed service? So it's a long story. Um, Actually, it's a relatively short story. I grew up in a military family. My dad was Navy, career Navy, P-3 pilot. He married the boss's daughter, a P-3 pilot's daughter. Uh, my, my grandfather was his skipper. Um, my grandfather was a Korean War vet. My father was Vietnam era, um, both pilots, aviators. And I was raised, obviously, in a family of service. Um, but when it came time for me, to consider where my service would be, I actually was very much encouraged by my father to join the Air Force. And the reason why is I wanted to be an astronaut. I wanted to be um, Sally Ride. And I had, you know, looked at her history and where she went to school and what she did. And, you know, it looked like the path to be an astronaut was to be either some kind of an engineer, definitely some kind of a pilot, um, and that there weren't a lot of opportunities for people like me, meaning girls at that time, that weren't maybe in the Air Force rather than the Navy. The Navy had fewer pilot slots. Um, and I was actually a pre-9-11 uh, service member. I joined in 1989. And just a few years after my um, joining was when women started really having better access to pilot opportunities. 
It turned out that I was offered a pilot slot. I was in ROTC at San Jose State University because Stanford didn't have a ROTC program at the time. And I did get that really nice offer to be a pilot, which is what I thought I really wanted out of life. But I had also met my husband um, at that point in time. Uh, he's now been my husband for almost 34 years. He's about a mile and a half up the road right now. And having grown up in a family of pilots and understanding what the obligations were towards families and spouses in particular, I just couldn't do it to him the way that it, the way that it had happened to me as a kid. So I turned down the pilot slot. Um, I'm not an astronaut. That's a spoiler alert. Um, but I think that I've, I've done enough good with my life as a result of my service. Now, Megan, um, you entered West Point like right after, like shortly after 9-11. And I think um, like me, I, I did ROTC. It was a bit of a surprise, kind of the whole military aspect of the service academy, the marching, the traditions. Uh, you're a tennis athlete. So I want to want to hear a little bit about your journey to the military because I think there's just as many people like HR and Dave who knew for forever that they want to go in the military. I think there's just as many people who sometimes kind of stumble into it and actually find a lot of meetings. So I'd love to hear kind of your journey. Sure. And my story is very different than my my fellow panelists in the fa in the fact that um, I my father was a banker, my mother was a stay at home mother. I had one grandfather who was in Germany shortly after World War II. He ran a PX during the occupation, but other than that, I had I didn't know a single person in the service. Um, I went to National Clay Courts, which is a tennis tournament about the the best 150 tennis players, junior tennis players in the country are are uh, allowed to play in the tournament every year. And I met the West Point coach. And this is the summer of 2001. And um, I thought I knew I would never be a professional tennis player. I wasn't big enough or good enough, uh, tall enough. Uh, and so I looked at college as how do I leverage my tennis to get into a great school to set me up for the rest of my life. But service academies had never occurred to me. It wasn't I didn't even realize they had tennis programs. So I met, I met the coach and my dad was with me and said, wow, that's a really great school. You should consider that. And I thought, what? Like, no, I mean, it, you know, I just, it was not what I had ever pictured myself doing. Uh, so in the span of about three months, he, the coach called me every week as they do with, with athletes. And I, you're allowed, I, at that time was five official visits to schools. And so I said, for my dad's sake, go with me to West Point. We'll check it out. And um, and, and, and I, I got in, actually I landed for my official visit a week after, uh, the, the September 11th and the trade centers had fallen and I landed in Newark, which is right across the river as most, I'm sure many of you know. Um, so I was, I was really in the thick of the decision as that was all happening. Um, and I, and I, I still think because our, I, I don't, I think at that time I not I might not I might be the only person who thinks this, but I I don't think we thought the next twenty years would look like it did. So for me, it was still, all right, Megan, this is a great school. This is a great opportunity. You're going to learn a ton. You're going to be challenged. You know, you're going to do a great thing and serve your country. That obviously was attractive to me. So I wasn't totally there for the tennis. I knew what I was getting into. Um, but yeah, I did. I showed up. Um, 
it was a very big culture shock for me. Um, I was in a little bit of denial as I saw all my friends going off to fun schools where they were going to join sororities or whatever. And there I was in a military academy with getting screamed at. And um, so it, it, it took me a little bit of time to adjust for sure. And, I, you know, the knowledge books for me were the, su- the first summer was a very tough one. I was singled out as the tennis player right away. And it was very clear that I was trying to figure it all out. <laughs> it was a steep learning curve, but uh, but I will say, I was I think there were six girls, women in my platoon in basic training, and I was the only one that that finished. So I stuck it out. <laughs> it's not how you start; it's how you finish, right? <laughs> well, I want to I want to stop there a little bit because I want to stop at that moment of time, which is nine eleven. It was kind of why we're all here. Now, Representative Houlihan, you started your service, you mentioned, far before 9-11. But I believe you stayed in the reserves for a much longer time, and we're probably in the reserves when 9-11 happened. That's a complicated story. (laughs) Um, Yes, I was, unbeknownst to me and the military. So this is a really interesting story that we ought to talk about at some point in time. But I I separated. I uh, joined in 1989 was when I graduated. Um, got out because the Berlin Wall fell and there was a reduction in force and there was, you know, kind of people saying, what, who are we fighting anymore? Um, what, what's the world going to look like when we don't have Russia to fight against anymore? It turned out that I was in the uh, reserves for 13 years. I didn't know it and the military didn't know it. And when I found out was when I was running for Congress. Not kidding you. Um, I started looking for my records to make sure that I could demonstrate, you know, that I had served because people in Congress in, uh, in politics get attacked for a lot of things. So I was looking for my records. Um, and not surprisingly, those records were pretty antiquated because they were pre computers. You know, I got out when, when the internet was just starting to be something that people talked about. Um, I was at MIT when email was only, you had to walk to go get it. You know, it was, it was go, you know, secret net kind of a thing. So anyhow, I discovered that I had been in the reserves for 13 years without the military knowing it, including during 9-11 and post 9-11, and that my friend who also went to Stanford with me, who also lives down the street from me now, the two of us uh, grew a company called And One Basketball together. He and I both served you know, the same amount of time. Uh, he was in Desert Storm in the AWACS, I was Desert Storm here. And he also had that same glitch, that same computer glitch. And this is part of what I struggle with, is how do we lose people for 13 years? And we did. We were lost. And the minute that um, Desert Storm happened, I was a young mother. I had just had a baby. Um, I ran downstairs, grabbed my, uh, my fatigues and my combat boots, and I was you know, ready to go. And my husband, who's not in the military, looked at me like I was crazy. Like, what are you doing? And I said, this is art. You know, this is my job. I'm, you know, if they told, tell me I'm going somewhere, I'm going somewhere. And that just frustrates me that for a very long period of time, more than a decade, nobody asked me to do anything. Well, that's actually something I want to return to when we come back to the discussion about public service, because I think the total force on the reserves is a really important part of the future of the all-volunteer force. Um, I hope that we have people in the future that can stay in the reserves for 13 years and we can pull them up when necessary and it not be a glitch in the system. Well, HR, I I want to turn to you. Um, For those of you who don't know, 
HR is an actual war hero. I, I, I'm sorry, I'm going to embarrass you a little bit. HR is an actual war hero. Not only did he win the Silver Star in Iraq in the 90s, he then went on to serve in the second invasion of Iraq and in Afghanistan. The amount of combat that you have seen over the last two to three decades is pretty remarkable. But you've also been in the midst of it at the tactical, operational, and strategic level for war both before 9-11 and after 9-11. How do you think warfare has changed since September 11th? And how did the army change? And then did that affect how you changed as an officer? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I had the uh, the great benefit of, of you know, being interested in history and then being able to study history full time after Desert Storm. So I had this kind of, you know, this, this experience in Desert Storm that I talked to, to um, some of the cadets about today, uh, after which I had a chance to reflect on it and to maybe try to place it in context of military history broadly, but also thinking about future work when I studied military history at the University of North Carolina. And what I've began to appreciate is that there are continuities in war, in the nature of war. There are changes in the character of war terror, but in a great book called The Face of Battle, John Keegan, who studied changes and continuities in war across, across four centuries uh, in the same geographic area, like around Belgium, uh, from, you know, from the, you know, from the, uh, uh, the, the, the uh, Hundred Years War uh, to, you know, to all the way through World War I. He writes at the end of this book, what battles have in common is human. The struggle of men and obviously women, he's writing this in the 60s, uh, trying to reconcile their instinct for, for self-preservation with the achievement of some aim over which others are trying to kill them. And then he goes on to talk about this dialectic and what you feel. It's a it's a it's a it's a you know it's an experience in battle of of courage, right? And some and fear and so forth describes the human experience. But at the end, he says, "What battles have in common is that they are aimed at the disintegration of human groups." And I really took that to heart as an officer. And what I tried to do is to ensure that my human group, my platoons, my troops, squadrons, and regiments did not disintegrate. Because we had the degree of competence, the level of training, that we could even get, we could get into the most harrowing experience and fight and win. And then we aimed in battle to disintegrate the enemy's will to fight in ways after 9-11 that were much more complicated than the tank battle in the, in the, in the Gulf War. And so um, I, I see when I look at war and, and warfare, continuity and change, oftentimes we're so enamored with the next technological innovation, we think, man, the next war is going to be fundamentally different from all those that have gone before it. That's never been the case. Actually, new forms of warfare typically are layered onto the old. And you see that playing out in, in places like Ukraine. You see that playing out with the horrible uh, mass murder attacks that occurred on October 7th and the, and the violent aftermath in Israel and in Gaza. So, so um, I, I really saw more continuity uh, th- than change. But I'll, I'll tell you, you're, you're so funny about this, uh, uh, Jack, when you said that you, like, you didn't have an enemy, or a congresswoman, when you said you didn't have an enemy in the 90s. But I, I actually got to witness the, 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 the lifting of travel restrictions from East Germany to West Germany. Our troop was, was patrolling the border in Germany when that, when that happened. So we went from staring down East German border guards one minute 
to the next minute, the gate's being thrown open, and then tens, and then hundreds, and then thousands, and then tens of thousands of these Germans streaming across the border, which was really emotional for me because I had been acquainted with how horrible it was behind the Iron Curtain and these communist dictatorships because Valley Force gave me a chance to go to Romania when I was here in 1978 under Ceausescu, which, which, which deepened my desire to serve. But then at one point, I got into an argument with my wife Katie about something you know, silly. And she said, you know, you're just mad because you don't have an enemy anymore. <laughs> and, then, and then Saddam invaded Kuwait. I was like, thank you, Saddam. Thank you, you have an enemy now. <laughs> well, Dave, I want to turn to you because you have actually, um, an, there's an interesting connection between you and HR. So um, Dave's story uh, is a story of someone who volunteered for everything, who said, what's the hardest thing I can do in the army? Let's do that. I want to jump out of airplanes. I want to send me, send me in. If you're going somewhere, send me in. I want to go first. My bags are packed. I'm ready. But there's a timing thing, right? So your, your story is a bit of a near misses when it comes to combat until you meet up with HR. So can you tell us a little bit about that story, about like how HR brought you into combat? And then I'd like for you to talk a little bit, if possible, about how that deployment shaped your military service and now your civilian identity. Sure. So uh, also a, a complicated 9-11 story for me, uh, as you said, Jackie, when I went into the military, uh, again, coming out of uh, college athletics and, and really just excited to go see the world and do as much as I could, I did. I said, sign me up for the, the hardest you got. I want to be in the infantry and I want to be airborne. And I want to be ranger and I, I want to do all this stuff. I got to my unit. I got assigned to the 101st Airborne Division. Uh, I said, it's the late 90s. There was not a lot going on. I said, whatever's going on, whatever the artist is, send me there. They, they deployed me on a, a peacekeeping mission in, in the Middle East and, and had that opportunity with, with some wonderful soldiers. Came back. We trained, we trained, we trained. And on the morning of September 11th, just finished uh, our physical training for the morning, uh, our unit, our battalion, was what was called DRF-1. And so I, I don't know if this still exists in the military or doesn't, but we had two infantry battalions uh, ready to go, wheels up, anywhere in the world in 18 hours. So our bags were packed, everything was on a pallet, your will was updated, you had all your shots, uh, no alcohol, anywhere kind of pre-cell phone. And so if you were going anywhere off of base too far, you had to call and check in, uh, ready to go. And we were in that posture as I was driving down the road in my truck and, and heard the early sounds of, of the attack. And my immediate thought was, okay, I'm right where I'm supposed to be. Uh, and it turns out it wasn't. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, the immediate aftermath of September 11th was, was not a, a mass mobilization and, and an 18-hour deployment anywhere. In fact, I don't know the CIA was even on the ground for another few weeks and then special forces and, and sort of a buildup over time. And so it was a much slower uh, reaction to that. Uh, the 5th Special Forces Group was one of the leading elements in Afghanistan. The famous horse soldiers were right next door to us. We helped to get them out the door and kept waiting for our opportunity to go. And we got a call 
uh, there was a, a code word alert. You would get a call on the phone, and if you got the word, uh, then that meant assemble with everything ready to go. And, and it came in, and we got the call, and we showed up. And I'll never forget walking into the battalion headquarters and seeing a map of Indiana on the wall and saying to our S2 intelligence officer, like, I was imagining that he was uh, like just working and getting the thing focused. Like, why would he have a map of Indiana? I said, yeah, imagine if we were invading Indiana. And he looked at me and he said, yeah, can you effing believe it? And I said, well, when we put, I don't know how many uh, of the uh, 101st uh, Airborne Brigade uh, helicopters in the air that night, and we, we did uh, go into a small town in Indiana where it turns out there was a sensitive site that, that needed to be secured in the moment. That was... <laughs> That was uh, the, the whole of our deployment, came back, uh, I had applied, I had already had my applications in for law school, I was coming up on the end of my four years of service, and the war was winding down, we weren't deploying a lot more folks, we weren't kind of doing a massive build-up, and my time was, was coming, uh, coming short, I was set to be married, uh, set to head off to law school and, and get on with my life, and thought, okay, the, the moment has passed. I took one last shot. I went to the recruiter in town as I was getting ready to, to leave. And I said, look, I'll turn in my commission, take me down to E1 if you can get me on an airplane going wherever there's something happening. And he looks at me and he says, you gotta be kidding me. The guard and the reserve are never gonna be involved in this fight. <laughs> okay. Little bit. And so, uh, so that was the end of it. Uh, I, was, I was out and of course, um, Things progressed in a very different direction, both in Iraq and Afghanistan. And for me, the thing that uh, I was never settled about, one was that it, at the end of the day, I, did, I ended up you know, losing some, some good friends and brothers and sisters who I served with. But my soldiers, the guys that I trained, went and they carried the load, they carried their burden. And so not that in uh, an absolute way, I felt like it was, it was my obligation to sort of go, but at that point, given what I had trained for, what I thought I was able to do, what I thought I was really good at, I never had that opportunity to sort of carry my weight. And so I had been out of the military entirely. I was over in China, I just worked there and back, uh, worked my way back in and uh, was, was down in the Pentagon doing some work around stability operations, which ties to my work, the work that I was doing in, in Camden, New Jersey. And we've got Reverend Floyd White here from Camden. Um, and uh, we, were, we were rebuilding cities there, and we were, we, were, we were taking all of what we had learned over the last 40 or 50 years and, and applying it and, and changing the way that we were doing it. And I was talking to my colleagues, captains and majors who'd been placed in charge of this neighborhood or that and in Baghdad or Kandahar or someplace else with the mission of stabilizing and kind of getting things up and going. And I said, oh, we're doing it all wrong. We're doing the same thing we did wrong 40 years ago here in the United States. Um, and so I, I was invited to give a uh, presentation at what was called the Expeditionary Economics Conference at West Point, where I was critical of the Army's approach to stability operations and how we were doing it. I had the privilege to, to sit next to General McMaster at dinner. We had a chance to meet there. Subsequently, very shortly thereafter, you returned, I guess, to Afghanistan and, and uh, sent word back to West Point. We're looking for somebody who does this thing. They called me and said, hey, from, remember that guy used from Philly you sat next to at the dinner? <laughs> that's, that's the best we can do, as it sounds. So I um, uh, was, was fortunate, but in one of the most difficult decisions of my life, at this point, uh, beautiful wife and, and two kids, age four and two, uh, 
who you know, thought we had the, the life that we were going to lead all set and before us uh, when dad comes home and says this is what he's going to do. And so, you know, extreme gratitude to my, my family, my, my immediate family, my parents and, and extended family in, in helping me through that. But it did give me the opportunity to serve. And in a way, at the end of the day, that, that certainly had much more strategic importance than I would have as a, an infantry lieutenant there on the ground. Not, not the story I anticipated, uh, but one that I'm proud of and, and grateful for. And I think that's a great example, first, about how veterans' stories, their paths, are not all the same. Um, and for you, and I think for, for me as well, how the reserves can also be a path towards continued service, even when you're out of the active duty. Now, Megan, you, um, you were an Army officer, but you, like me, were a military spouse as well. And so you are balancing both those identities while you're deploying, your husband's deploying, you're kind of coming, you know, are you the spouse? Are you the supported, the supporting? How did you balance those identities during your time in service? Sure, so probably helpful to know. So my, so we were 1st Brigade, 1st Cav, pretty much our entire time in the service, minus training. Um, my husband did a tour with them to Iraq 2006 to 2008, while I was um, finishing up my time at West Point and going through officer basic school and all those kinds of things, he came back in January 2008, knowing we, he and I were both getting back on a plane in January 2009 to head back over to Iraq for 12 months. Um, I think his first deployment while I was in the States was probably the worst <laughs> 15 months of my life. Um, I knew what was happening probably to a level that I, I wish I hadn't have known. Um, and we're talking about things like my husband was, uh, an infantry platoon commander in a tank running up and down this road called route Tampa. And we were there in my officer basic course talking about route Tampa, looking at pictures of destroyed Bradley's <laughs> and, um, so it hit very close to home. I also knew, I mean, literally he called me on my birthday while he was deployed that deployment and he started getting shot at and had to get off the phone. So I knew he was in real combat. And, um, and so I just like, a, just like a, a military spouse that's not in uniform, every time someone in a uniform walked up to me or in a group, you know, you're the, you think the worst. Um, there were parts of my, OBC. We toured everybody who's injured or killed during this last war. Their personal effects go through Aberdeen Basic uh, Aberdeen Proving Ground, or at the time they did, and that's where my OBC was. And we were touring the facility while my husband was deployed. And nope, I'm not going through that door. That was a little too much. So I think um, it was hard. And I, I I think the hardest job I will say is being a military spouse compared to a service member. Um, our second tour, or his second tour, we were together and we could talk on secret phones. We were part of the same brigade. So I knew generally what was happening. I had soldiers. We weren't at the same forward operating base, but I had soldiers at his forward operating base so I could go check on them. So we would see each other. I think the first nine months of our tour, we saw each other twice, which isn't great, but yeah, still. And I knew if something happened, I would know quickly and I could probably get wherever he was. So it was a little bit more peace of mind. But I also, the other thing I'll say is because I knew what was happening as his spouse, 
I was very careful to not ask a lot of him. I knew his priority in life had to be keeping his soldiers, training his soldiers, keeping them safe, keeping them alive, keeping them healthy. And I took a voluntarily took a backseat, as I think many military spouses do. Um, we we served again in the same same brigade for pretty much most of our service, and we were at the same place at the same time for about fourteen months of the five years that I was in. And you know, I think for us, one of the reasons that we got I got out, we got out, and maybe we'll get into this is you know it's very hard to sustain a marriage when you see each other that amount and you choose to put your marriage last. But that was what had to be done at that point. Um, so we'll stop there. I want to transition a little bit to talking about um, this generation kind of versus or what's similar or different um, compared to other uh, generations. Um, and HR, you spent a lot of your academic career uh, thinking about Vietnam. And I'm sure in your time as a professor at West Point, you probably taught the lessons learned from Vietnam. I mean, you joined the Army at the inception of the all-volunteer force, which was really the result of Vietnam veterans uh, who said, we need a professional military. So I kind of wonder, how do you think the post-9-11 veteran generation will shape the future force? What What have we learned from the last two decades of military service that will be taught at West Point or Valley Forge to future generations. Well, you know, it was, it was really interesting as a kid at West Point. Nobody talked about Vietnam. So I, I was there from 1980, 1984. All my professors have been in Vietnam. None of them talked about it because it was a scarring experience, right? It was, a, it was, it was at that, by that point, America's longest war, and it was a lost war. And, and so this is one of the reasons why I wrote the book I did. I really was interested in how, why did, you know, did Vietnam become an American war? And how did the way that, we, that it became an American war affect the course of the war and its outcome? So I was interested in the lessons, but nobody was really talking about it. I read a lot about it because I thought, okay, my responsibility is to get ready to fight the next war. So I got to study the last one as much as I can to prepare myself and, so, and, and my soldiers and teams uh, for, for the next one. I think we're in a very similar situation now, Jackie, and, and hmm. I think because of, of the, the humiliating surrender and withdrawal in Afghanistan, I don't know what else to call it, we essentially self, we engaged in self-defeat in Afghanistan and surrendered to a terrorist organization. And that's scarring uh, for, for those of us who served in Afghanistan. Um, and, and, uh, and, and I think what is happening, that what you see in the military today is not an effort to learn what the heck went wrong in Afghanistan, maybe in Iraq in terms of the length and cost of that war as well. What you see is, is, is the same impulse after Vietnam. Let's forget about that. After Vietnam, there was a word for this called the Vietnam Syndrome, a phrase for this. And the idea was that we're never going to do anything like that again. You know, a protracted counterinsurgency, right? Well, yeah, we did do it again. And so what, I, what I'm worried about is, is kind of a new form of the Vietnam syndrome that precludes us from learning from the experience in Afghanistan and Iraq. And I think fundamentally what we might learn is pay attention to the continuities of war. War's political. Okay, it's like the Geico commercial. Everybody knows that. Clausewitz said war's an extension of politics. But you know what that means? That means the consolidation of military gains to get to sustainable political outcomes 
has never been an optional phase in war. Right? This is what Israel's confronting now in Gaza. Okay, what's next? What happens next? The second is a war is human. People fight for the same reasons that Thucydides identified 2,500 years ago. Fear, honor, and interest. And if you don't address those drivers of the conflict, then you're going to have perpetual conflict. The third is the war is uncertain. The future course of events doesn't depend on what we do. It depends on also the enemy. How do we fight the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan? We announced to our enemy years in advance. Here's our, the schedule for our withdrawal. Here's what we're going to do, what we're not going to do. It's almost like we thought we could write the script out for the war and hand it to the Taliban and Pakistan and Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan and say, hey, this is the role you've got to stick to because we've scripted it out. It doesn't work that way. And then finally, war is a contest of wills. If you're going to fight a war, you've got to win. You've got to determine what does winning mean, and then you've got to do everything you can to win. There are these weird phrases that have crept into our lexicon. A responsible end. We just want to bring this word a responsible end. Hey, I used to box. I never got in a boxing ring and said, I'm just going to bring this fight to, you know, a responsible end. Do you know why? Because I would get my ass kicked, right? I mean, so, so you, you go in to win, and, and you have to have that, you have to sustain that will. That's from the political level of the president, and understand, you know, explain to the American people two things the American people need to know. One, what is at stake? Why do we care about the outcome of this war? And the second is, what is the strategy to achieve a favorable outcome in that war, to win, at a cost that's acceptable to the American public? I think multiple leaders failed over multiple administrations to do that effectively in Afghanistan. And that's one of the high-level, I think, lessons uh, of, of recent wars. So I also think that can be why it can be complicated for this generation of veterans to think about what their service meant. Can because, I say something about that? Sure. Because I really feel like I need to say this really quick. Because I, okay, so I'm, be, I'm critical about those wars. If you want to know how noble service was in Afghanistan, look at what Afghanistan is today. Look at what American soldiers and, and, and Marines and airmen and, 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 uh, and, and sailors what they freed the Afghan people from after they lived under the hell of the Taliban from 96 to 2001. Because guess what? Hell's back to Afghanistan. That's what we prevent. Sadly, the way we mismanaged that war and in effect partnered, I mean, I, I can't even say it, but I mean, partnered with the Taliban against the Afghan government on the way out. That's really in effect what happened. But that service was noble. That service was in response to the largest mass murder terrorist attack in history against our country on September 11th. And unseeing the Taliban and going after Al-Qaeda was a righteous thing to do. And so I, I think veterans of that war should be proud of their service uh, and, and recognize that the outcome is profoundly disappointing to us. But you know what that means? That means that military service today is more important than it was even then. Do you know why? Our enemies are emboldened by that, that humiliating surrender and withdrawal. You can draw a direct line from August 2021, the stain of August 2021, and, the, and, the, and leaving Kabul, to the, the reinvasion of, Afghanistan, of, uh, of Ukraine in, 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 uh, a year later, you know, in, in February of 2022. So I think it's a dangerous world because our enemies perceive weakness now. 
Weakness is provocative. And this is what you see with Iran activating their ring of fire strategy around Israel and, and really committing acts of war against us across the entire region. It's, it's a perception of weakness. Now, Japan in 1941 perceived weakness. That was a mistake. North Korea in June of 1950 perceived weakness. Big mistake. So I believe in American resolve and American strength. We have to get it back together because the world is becoming increasingly dangerous. It's hard to follow up on that. But I, I think that part of what we're trying to do here is to allow veterans to tell that story, to tell people how their serve, what their service meant to them and how the experience that they had in Iraq, Afghanistan, or wherever has led them to be the person that they are today and how that means that they will continue to contribute to American society and American democracy. And I think I want to turn to Megan because, Megan, you've had to uniquely deal with the needs of this generation's veterans. I mean, when your job focuses on veteran philanthropy, and I can imagine when you started that job, you were probably the only woman and the only non-Vietnam veteran who was leading veteran philanthropy efforts. I wanted to understand from your perspective, what are the different needs of these generations? And you know, you've been out there in the field trying to support 9-11 veterans. What does the 9-11 veteran need? I think more than anything, um, it's, it's, it's funny, there's always been this conflict, and I'm gonna try to do this delicately, delicately and not a real conflict, but between Vietnam era veterans and Iraq and Afghanistan veterans. And, and, and I'll, I'll say, and I, I, over the years, I've had so many Vietnam veterans come up to me and say, you are so lucky that people support you. And it took me a little while because it always used to sort of frustrate me. Um, I'm going somewhere with this, I promise. Um, that, 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 that was the perception of the Vietnam era veteran because the perception, I think, often of the Iraq and Afghanistan veterans, speaking for myself, not everyone, but partly was people put a sticker on their car and then went on with their lives. So I'm, I, I, I'm not making a judgment as to whether the wars were worth it or not worth it or went well or poorly, but re rather, you know, the military, our generation, the Vietnam, one something we have in common is that... Um, we need the rest of the country. We need it then, we need now. And I think in particular right now, I think HR, your comment about how we wanna forget the last 20 years. Now's the time where we need to, ha we need to have some, some honest conversations. I've been in the room with people who say, that war was unjust. You were a terrible person for having participated. And you know, I, to, if I'm being very honest, which I think we're supposed to be here, you know, I wanted to say, you're responsible too for what happened in the last 20 years. You know, we as a country need to have deeper and more thoughtful conversations about what we're doing and where it's headed. And then, so just the, so the reason I'm, I'm saying this is the needs of this generation right now are, they're not being absorbed into the workforce. Um, well, we know six, we, we've funded a study at six and a half years post-service, 60% uh, of them are still underemployed. It's a really big problem. And, and some of what Jackie's talked about, 
some people grow up and the military is their path and that's amazing and the country needs people from day one to feel like that but there are also people who who find their way into the service and see it as both benefiting the country and themselves that's okay too but they but i do think we have to deliver um we say that the military is a path to a better life that the it's a path to to better things and i i will say I question that at times, not for everyone. It's and, and I will say it's benefited me greatly. I I what I do with my life is different because I served in the military. So I'm a huge advocate of it. But um because there's this really severe military civilian divide right now, um, and the military is becoming a caste system in many ways, um, this is affecting how well we transition to the civilian sector after we leave the service. Leave it there, me. And I think that's a great segue to talk about what it means as a veteran to return and what the legacy of military service is for everyone on this panel. This panel was put together because these people have done extraordinary things in public service. And I want to highlight, uh, Representative Houlihan, your public service. You started by serving in the military but you also served in education, and as a mother and somebody who works very hard for education, that's an extraordinary place to be. And now as a legislator. Uh, so I'm interested in kind of your perspective. What do you think these different forms of public service have in common? And then how did your service in the military shape your subsequent service in education and activism in um, you know, representing your constituents? So um, I'm really glad you've asked this question. I'm going to do my very best to articulate what my, my f purpose is. My purpose is to always challenge myself to the highest, best use and to always think, what can I be doing at this point in my life with what I know how to do to be most useful at this point in my life, knowing that th things are complicated. You have a family, you have... So when I separated from the military, and we can have a longer conversation about why I did that, not only because you know there was no threat perceived, but also because it was complicated to be a young mom in the military. And that's what I do a lot of thinking about in Congress now, is to figure out how to be more welcoming and inclusive of all of the people who want to join the military. Um, but after uh, leaving the military, I, I joined a gr group of friends, some of them actually from uh, Stanford and some from the military itself, who grew a basketball apparel and footwear company. And we focused on making sure that we grew a really good company with good uh, values and ethics, and it sounds like you're in the similar business of, of uh, social responsibility in terms of how you run your business. So that was of service too. From there, I helped build something that was an organization that focused on corporate social responsibility. How do you take this awesome country, this awesome capitalist society and economy that we have and harness that power for good and to make sure that we are building companies that not only make money, but also take care of community environment uh, uh, the uh, employees as well. And from there, as you mentioned, join Teach for America, another organization that I think is really important. And there's some sort of bifurcation in our society's mind that you can either wear a uniform or you can serve in a different way, but there's never a continuity or a spectrum that's understood that all of this is of service to the country, whether you're in a for-profit company, a non-profit company, you're in a uniform, you're in you know, Congress, these are all forms of service and we need to figure out how to use ourselves in every aspect, in every time in our life to serve. And I think that's why you were talking about kind of this 
um, disconnect this caste system now where most people who serve in the military came from a, a family that also served in the military. And you were talking about how we need to open up the aperture and accept more people who come from more diverse backgrounds um, because our military needs to represent our society. And right now, I don't know that it's hitting that, that groove. And so that's also something that I work on in Congress through something called the Quality of Life uh, Task Force. How do we give people purpose and reason to want to continue to come back and to re-enlist? How do we give people the idea in the first place that they want to wear a uniform and they want to serve in this way? Because we need you. You know, we, we need you. Here in this community, our unemployment rate is 2.8%. You know, when you're thinking about what it is that you're going to do with your life, it's we want you to think about the military, but it's pretty hard to compete with the military with, you know, 2.8% unemployment. Um, and not being yelled at when you're, you know, uh, when you're in the military. Um, and so I guess that's kind of my journey is trying to figure out how we can make it more um, accessible that this sense of service isn't, I, I, I serve on, on the military personnel subcommittee too. And when I asked all the four stars and all the most senior ranking enlisted people, what is it that's keeping people from joining? What are you hearing? And what they're saying is, they don't see themselves in this military. They think that this is a pause in their life. And I, I struggle with that. This is not a pause in your life. This is life. You know, this is life is to serve. Um, and that's something that we need to be able to provide clarity for more people for. Well, Dave, I want to turn to you now because your company works um, to sustainably revitalize communities, build affordable housing. And in some ways, when you go to the beginning of your story, this seems like a far cry from like jumping out of airplanes or you know, the kind of training that you initially did in the army. So how did your military service inspire your work? Um, and then how did your work in the private sector um, and in revitalizing urban com uh, communities end up being applicable in your deployment to Afghanistan? Well, look, I, I think that the military, this is part of what of the story I think that, that you're hearing here, has this a critical role in our country and in the health and strength of our country, not just as a, a de defense force or a force to enact our will in the world, but also as a training ground for the future leaders of America. And that's invaluable. We cannot lose sight of that. And to get the full promise of what that means, we have to think about the full life cycle, as Congresswoman Fulian said, of, of who we're bringing into the military, what that experience is, and then what the opportunities are after. I started my own company in, in uh, 2014. Prior to that, uh, I worked on the revitalization uh, of a city called Camden, New Jersey, just across the river uh, at the time, one of the, the poorest cities in America. And when I think about what my military service has meant to that journey, I think about three things. First is leadership. When I got to the military, it was the first time that I realized that you don't just stand up and lead. That's kind of the, the high school sports version of it. Hey, you're up. Time to lead, buddy. <laughs> leadership is something that you study. It's something that you work at. It's something that you practice. And I, I say this with the cadets in the room particularly in mind. It's something that you read about, you find mentors on, and it's something that you never perfect. Probably even at the end of a, a 30 plus year career, you're still learning something about what it means to be a leader. But that training and that ability to employ that uh, out in the civilian world and in the military is, is critical. The second is service. 
What does it mean to be a servant, to be of service, to be a servant leader, to lead in a way that puts self second? And that fundamentally, again, very similar to what you were, were talking about with your, your work with the B corporations and, and the amazing work that you've done around changing the way that we think about the role of companies. That's the same approach that I've, I've taken to my work, that if you can subtract yourself or at least bring yourself a level be behind the folks you're trying to serve, you recognize from your time in the military how much more you can accomplish, how much more impact you can have, and oh, by the way, how much more rewarding it is along the way. And the last part of it is, is entrepreneurship. And I think this is the thing that people who are not in the military always kind of scratch their head at. It's really, that's one of the biggest organizations in the world. You're following rules and you're marching in a line and you're doing your thing. When I think about what it means to start a small company, you're under-resourced. The mission changes from moment to moment. You're in an incredibly fluid environment. You're tired. You're trying to figure out how to overcome the next obstacle. Do I have my eye on the right objective? Are we headed the right way? How do I motivate the folks behind me to, to get to the finish line? That, that's small unit leadership. That's being an infantry platoon leader at three o'clock in the morning in the swamp of Florida with half of your platoon on the border of hypothermia. That's standing in front of your, your platoon as you, you get on the airplane for the first time and they wave goodbye and kiss goodbye to their families. You take them overseas and you know that you're the one responsible for bringing them back alive. That's what that is. And the military provides that opportunity to train the lead. And, and those are all things that were so important to my experience in the military and as I was able to translate it out, but, but not just in a post 9-11 context. And, and as we kind of think about where we're going and even where we've been, I, I look around the audience here. I, I see Dan Klum, a pre 9-11 veteran who has started at least three or four different companies uh, and in, uh, the, in Havertown and created hundreds of jobs. And Victor Cortese, who has led uh, organizations, is revitalizing $150 million revitalization of a hospital turning it into a community health center in the poorest neighborhood of Philadelphia right now. And Reverend Floyd Weiss doing that same transformative work. These are people who are out and leading and taking what they have uh, accomplished and learned through their service and transferring it out. I was fortunate, it doesn't always happen, that because of this odd timing of my own deployments that I was able to take some of what I was learning and transmit it back in, in Afghanistan. We worked on economic development. We worked on shoring up the sectors of the economy to, to protect them against uh, corruption and, and organized crime. And, and that was incredibly rewarding and I learned a lot through that. But far and away where the impact is going to be for me and I hope for, for thousands and, and millions of others is that, that post-service opportunity. So as we think about it as a country, and I'll, I'll close with this, it starts with that big funnel. How do we keep the military attractive and interesting and an opportunity of choice for the widest range of folks we can? That to me is one of the great legacies of 9-11. We had professional football players leaving the football field and coming in, folks who were leaving Wall Street and coming from backgrounds who just normally did not uh, go directly into the military. We brought the widest and most diverse group ever into the military and that is the group, that 20 years of service is the group that is now sitting out there as the country looks around and says, we are ready for another new generation of leadership. Those are the folks we ought to be looking to. And I think anything and everything we can do to encourage that and to support that uh, will benefit the country dramatically. How, HR, you served for um, 
four decades in uniform, close. And you were in multiple wars. You were at West Point and you ended your service in the White House. How do you think about public service now as a civilian? Yeah. Well, you know, it was, it's a big shift. You know, I, I, I do, I miss the army. I really do miss the army still. I miss soldiers, but you know, kind of predictably for, for a guy who was in the army for 34 years and 38 if you count West Point, I made a mission statement for myself when I left. And because I wanted to feel like I was still making a contribution. And the mission statement was that I wanted to contribute to a more full understanding of the most significant challenges and opportunities that we face internationally as a way to bring Americans together for meaningful, respected discussions about how to overcome those obstacles, take advantage of those opportunities, and build a better future. I'm very concerned about the degree to which our society is getting polarized, the degree to which you have this interaction between, you know, there, you know Old, new forms of identity politics and, you know, various critical theories and so forth, the valorization of victimhood and so forth, with old forms of bigotry and racism, I think, that are creating centripetal forces that are spitting us apart from each other, you know? And, and so I really think it's important for us to come back together to, to really regain an appreciation for how fortunate we are. I mean, I think all of us who've served in places like Afghanistan and Iraq recognize the tremendous gift, the great promise of our country. Now, if, the, if the, we, do, we do have problems, right? We've talked a little bit about these today. And, and you know, the, the zip code into one which is born uh, determines the, degree, the number of obstacles one has to overcome before they can take advantage of the great promise of this country. Now, that's a problem. But, hey, let's get after that then, right? Let's figure that out like Dave has, right? And, and others have, have worked on here. I, I'm worried that today this narrative you know, but that puts institutional and structural in front of every problem we face, robs people of agency, and leaves Americans with this toxic combination of anger and resignation. And so we, we, have to, we have to, you know, A, get over it, work together, and B, recognize that we do have authorship over our future. So that's what I want to try to contribute to that kind of a shift. I want to move to some um, audience questions because we got some pretty remarkable audience questions. Um, so this question, I, I'm going to frame initially for Dave, but uh, I also want to um, bring in Megan and uh, Representative Houlihan. So the question is, research suggests that about two to three million veterans fought in U.S. conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, the Middle East after 9-11, but many struggle to reintegrate into their communities. What role, this is my question for you, Dave, what role can communities in the United States play in the lives of veterans? And Megan, I want to extend that question to say, what role does philanthropy play? Um, and Representative Houlihan, what role does Congress and the U.S. government play? When you think about the work of transforming communities, it's about as interdisciplinary as it gets. So there are degrees that are about community development and so forth. But community development is, is learned in an interdisciplinary, uh, evolving, fast-moving, fluid environment where you've got uh, concerns tactically on, on the ground in terms of how you're, you're working with your project. You're looking at the broader political landscape. Uh, you're thinking about your, the resources that you can bring to it. It, it is a, a tremendous uh, opportunity. Now, in terms of thinking about how we get our veterans connected to that opportunity. I do feel like that is a fundamental challenge. I wish I had a, a clearer answer for it. One is by setting an example and talking about it for sure. Uh, communities and community leaders 
reaching out to veterans and bringing them into that work. But these are folks who are, are born to serve, have an ethos of service, and have the skills and abilities. So I, I, I think what you're identifying is really an opportunity. Hopefully we can, can figure out more and better ways beyond just individual mentorship to, to close the gap. The work that Hoover's doing, and we should call this out as, as part of the Veteran Fellowship Program, is a part of that. I see Iron Mike Stedman down there is uh, leading a lot of our, our, the work in, in Newark uh, right now in terms of Ironbound and uh, uh, area creating economic development there. So we, we've got good role models. We've got people who are out there doing it. We, we've got to increase that pipeline and, and make more of it happen. And Megan, what do you see from philanthropy? Where can philanthropy uh, help that reintegration of military and civilian? Sure, I think two things I'll say. First is philanthropy takes risks. If we take risks that government can't take out of the gates, my is, is what is the way, at least I, I look at it. Um, and, and luckily, philanthropy has been pretty active and pretty strategic over the last 10 years. So I'm one of a number of post 9-11 veterans actually leading pretty significant portfolios where for the last 10 years we've been testing things. We've been trying to figure out what I think mostly focused on reintegration where when someone leaves the military, they, they get their DD-214, what happens next? Well, there's a lot of things happening in communities that's trying to make sure that people transition seamlessly, smoothly, successfully. So we as a country right now are sitting on a ton of data around what matters and what makes that more successful. And I actually think philanthropy has not been in the conversation as, it, as much as it probably should have. Should be, we, we have rules and laws around what we're allowed to do and say, which limits a bit, but we, we actually have a lot to say where we are allowed to educate and inform uh, policymakers. And I, I feel like we've, we're sitting on a lot of really important stuff. Um, the second thing I would say is that, um, I'm, I'm gonna lose my train of thought here. We, so we take risks and um, I'll, maybe I'll stop. I'm gonna, I'm gonna remember this in a second, but I am right now having a total brain moment. Uh, so come back to me, actually. Let me figure this, let me think about this second thing that I was brilliantly gonna say, I promise. Yeah. <laughs> we'll turn to Congress, thank you. What's the role Speaking of the brilliant? Yeah, I'll be over here solving all the world's problems. Clearly, we have no problem with that. Um, Congress is a mess, right? Um, but it is. I'm going to be transparent and honest about it. It's it's a mess. That we've lost our path. We've lost you know our way. Um, and it's my responsibility to put us back on the path. As one of 435 of us, I share the general's um, anxiety and concern about the divisiveness of our of our world right now in our country. And I feel like I need to lead by example, and that's what I'm trying to do in, in my special one of 435 ways. But we do do some good things, and particularly what we agree on is that we need to take special care of our veterans, the people who have served us and allow us the freedoms that, that we have uh, today. And so how do we do that? How do we make sure that the veterans of 9-11, post-9-11, are taken care of in a, in a special way? First of all, we need to make sure that they feel like that they deserve the acknowledgement that they are veterans. A lot of us, to your point about the bumper sticker or whatever, I know I sometimes feel like when somebody asks all the veterans to stand in the room, I'm not, I'm sort of looking around. I know that I should stand. You know, I know that many of the people who have served in the last 20 years 
need to be acknowledged for their service, recognized not just with the thank you for your service, but be able to feel like they have access to the VA. And even when they don't have access to the VA, my brother served uh, as a medic during the post 9-11 uh, environment. He lives in rural Iowa. He doesn't have access to some of the care and attention that he needs. I need to provide that for him so that he has a level ground for his health, for his care. Um, then you need to think about the veteran as just a normal human being. We just, we want jobs. We want good health care. We want good education for our kids. We want to be able to put a roof over our heads. We want to be able to afford, you know, living in a community. This is an expensive community. And so that's also my responsibility, not only from a federal perspective, but whoever is uh, locally elected as well, our responsibility to provide the ability for people to get to their jobs, to afford the places that they live, to, to have good education, whether they live here or in North Philadelphia, where I, where I taught. So I need to provide those kinds of no-duh agenda, is what I call it, uh, for all of the people who live in our community and not just veterans. And the last thing I'll conclude with is veterans are special. They really are, as you were mentioning, we are entrepreneurial to the core. And so what you, I need to do is help our, entre, our veterans see themselves as entrepreneurs, whether they're you know, starting a company or participating in the growth of a company. Um, we need to be able to find the pathways for them to be able to do that. And sometimes veterans don't see themselves as entrepreneurial. They don't see themselves as creative, um, but we are. Uh, this is the same problem that you have if you're an engineer. People just decide that you're just like in, sitting in a box calculating things. So some of the work that I do in small business committee as well um, is to make sure that, that veterans see themselves as small and mid-sized businessmen and women and that they have the access to capital, business plans, um, those kinds of things that would allow them to be able to be successful entrepreneurs as well. Because we don't have the benefits that many people do of um, uh, maybe being uh, lawyers, doctors, those kinds of things with access to capital. So we need to make sure we're providing that too. So it's a multi-layered approach, whether it's VA, um, small business, or just being a normal human being. Jackie, I remembered. Can I follow up my second? Or are we? Oh, that's great. Because it, it might like segue into the next question. So let's hear the brilliance. <laughs> brilliance. Get ready. Uh, no, I, the other thing I was going to say is that philanthropy um, picks up where government leaves off. There's 18.2 billion dollars going towards transition government funding you can't cite it yet but it's coming um from some rant study but so it's a lot of money but really the nonprofit sector is also playing a huge huge role actually 60 percent of transitioning veterans every year go to one of four veteran service organizations that philanthropy funds right so um so that's the other thing i would say is transition the, the federal government is very meaningful in the lives of military veterans as they're transition while they're in, as they're transitioning, after they transition. But the community also plays a major, major role. And I think philanthropy understands that. And I think a lot of what I've done and my peers have done is understand is really zero in on how the community needs to be working with government at the state, local, state, and federal levels to see to help people move around our community to resources, through resources. And so I think that's a unique role we've played also. And this called the Improve Act, which is exactly what you're talking about. Nonprofits and community-based organizations are trying to help people veteran su with veteran suicide. Um, and this is a place where there's, we, we do as much as we can with the VA, but there are gaps. And we need to make sure that we're working with the community and that we're working with philanthropic organizations to take care of our veterans where they are. Mm -hmm. So Megan, I'm going to, 
um, turn back to you for this next question from the audience, which is a really tough. Uh, the question is, how can we strike a balance in allocating adequate resources for veteran care without inadvertently perpetuating the broken hero narrative? Wow, that is a hard you know, question. Like, it's a really hard question. <laughs> I, how do we strike the balance? Again, I think this is a military-civilian divide issue because people who have served in the military are often just alien, foreign to everyone else. Um, there's, we don't have as a country a nuanced perspective of what a veteran and who a veteran is. Right when I walk into the room, chances are, some in something, you know, nothing pops into people's heads saying, "Oh, she was an ordnance officer." Right? It, like, you know, there's we have a stereotype in the generally, I think, for what who is and what is a veteran, and it's often GI Joe looking men, white men. Uh, in post war, they're in wheelchairs or they're missing a limb, and that's not the reality. Um, so, so I do, I think, and I think we have to really, we have to work at this and we've tried a number of programs and sort of philanthropic uh, efforts to change them, including media campaigns. Um, but, but it, the problem persists the, and I'm going to, I'm just going to say it out loud. The Wounded Warrior Project has raised a lot of money with the veteran, the Wounded Warrior stereotype. And um, it's done a ton of damage because that's not always what what a service member a veteran looks like even a veteran who has mental or physical health needs looks like so um i think it, i just i'll just close by saying i don't know what the answer is i'm actively trying to figure that out in my philanthropy but that it's a massive massive problem and i think it's going to take we're going to have to figure out how to sit down and have these deep journalism needs to start to get involved uh in, in some of this I think part of the problem here is that it's all more complicated than a simple byline. Yes. And um, there are veterans that are wounded and there are veterans and veterans that require and deserve support. But that doesn't mean that these veterans also cannot contribute and play a special role in American society. Somebody may be wounded, but that might also be what makes them great. And I think we have to be able to to be able to support both. Um, I want to end by um, asking you a question, HR, from the audience. And this goes back to um, it's a question about the, they're talking about the Civil Air Patrol, which is a civilian auxiliary of the U.S. Air Force. And they say many of us are veterans that continue to serve with our Air Force Total Force partners, providing youth leadership, development opportunity, emergency services, aerospace education. So my question is. Can you think of this as a really great example of service after your kind of traditional military service? What are, can you think of other examples of how veterans can continue to serve in their communities? Yeah, I mean, I think just overall get involved within your community and, and whether it's, you know, community sports and coaching or in education. You know, there are so many veterans who go through this, you know, from Troops to Teachers program, for example. Yeah. And they're phenomenal. Yeah. One of my old uh, non-commissioned officers, my gunner from, from on, on my... Uh, well, my Bradley in Iraq is now who retires as command sergeant major, uh, is is uh, uh, is teaching in Texas in an underserved community, and he brought a bunch of the students to to, to Stanford, and uh, and some of my research assistants showed them all around Stanford University. I mean, I think there are just so many examples. I, I think I mentioned today to the cadets, uh, Team Rubicon, for example, which is a, an organization that that mobilizes veterans whenever there's a natural disaster, yeah. for for example. 
So, and I also plugged, uh, you know, the, the book Tribe by Sebastian Younger and, and the degree to which really, you know, what, what a soldier or, you know, who, who experiences, Marine who experiences combat trauma, you know, what they need even more than a healthcare professional is a community that has shared that experience and that sense of community. So what I would love to see is also, you know, the kind of an invigoration of existing organizations like yeah. the American Legion, for example, which I think could maybe not de-emphasize, but at least balance the advocacy for veteran care with getting veterans involved in community projects and bringing them to, together to work together to, you know, to, to build a better future. I don't think, and of course, the Congresswoman accepted that we can wait for politicians to reverse the polarization in our society. No, we don't have a should. We should all work together to do it within our communities, to have those discussions and think about like how we can make our own communities together. Boys and Girls Club of America, another, another example uh, of, of, of an organization in which veterans can serve and make a really big, and make a really big difference. So now we've gotten to the point of the day that you all didn't know that you were waiting for, but it, it is, and I'm not sure I warned everyone on the panel, but we're doing a lightning round. This is when I give you extremely difficult questions and you just have to answer them in like uh, 10 seconds. And we phone a friend. <laughs> Maybe one pass allowed. Okay, so we'll start with the lightning round. We'll start with Megan. If you were in charge of the DOD for a day, what is one change you would make? I would pay more attention to the transition of, of service members because a negative transition is impacting people's willingness to serve in the first place. And right now, I don't think my perception, my perception is that DOD doesn't take that seriously. I would say I would emphasize what the military is for and make all the priorities combat readiness and stop uh, you know, stop um, advocating a lot of the nonsense that I see uh, in political appointees in the Department of Defense today. Widen the outreach. Let's let's get as broad and as many and as deep a group of Americans serving in the military that we possibly can. I think I'm saying the same thing as you are by saying we need to understand better why so few people are qualified and willing to join the military and by zip code as an example, a really good example. So I would try to dive deeper into the data of why we are not resonating with the majority of Americans and ask them to serve in some way. Best place to be stationed. And I'll start with the representative. Um, I got to stay with my dad in uh, Hawaii my senior year. Uh, I was not able to stay there um, because I couldn't go to school in Hawaii and finish my senior year. So I instead went to school in Rhode Island while my family lived in Hawaii um, because of all the problems that we have as young people when we're in the military. So back to what I'd fix in the military, it's messed up. I could use a stronger word that I had to stay in Rhode Island when my aunt family was in Hawaii. Uh, and we could we should be able to fix that. I, I can just say that my wife still asks me, she says, you mean we could have been in Germany, Hawaii, Alaska, California, and you picked the border between Kentucky and Tennessee? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. HR. You answer first, how about you? Uh, well, my best place I was stationed was northern Japan, uh, Misawa. It's very snowy there. People don't generally think of it. 
Uh, but it was one of the most meaningful experiences of my life. Okay, my daughter Kara's here. Kara, what was your favorite place? I was going to say Fort Irwin, California. <laughs> 40 miles north of the cultural center of Barstow. It was awesome. <laughs> so I was, I, I was at West Point, if you want to count that. That, that was a great station, I think. Um, but I was at Fort Bliss, Fort Hood, Fort Irwin, and Iraq. That was all I saw when I was in the service. So pretty crap. It's unfortunate that you didn't join the Navy. I know. It was a bad choice looking <laughs> back. But Italy is my, would have been my dream, I think, uh, Vicenza. All right. I'm going to start the next round with UHR. It's a doozy. Should we reinstate the draft? No. Draft. No, but I would love to see a broader program of, yes. uh, of service. No, and uh, right when COVID hit was the, the three year, it took three years to develop the report of national service, national service recommendations. It dropped right when COVID happened. We lost the thread. We'd lost all the information that we could have used and we haven't implemented any of it to be honest and we should take a better look at that. Megan? I'm gonna go with yes. Oh. I'm, I'm sorry, everyone. Uh, I really think a lot of these civilian military divide issues and the engagement of our country in feeling ownership over where we go, when we go, why we go. Uh, I think that dynamic would change and I don't know how it doesn't unless people are impacted by like broadly by military service in our country. So that's why I'm gonna go with the unpopular decision. And choice. I was gonna make a joke about good thing you're not up for election. And that's true. I was gonna say you can't run for election. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I want to see what the, uh, hear what the superintendent thinks. What do you think? Yes or no? Draft. Uh, national service in some sort. I think people should, uh, I think bringing the country together, will, will, that will make it happen. Um, you know, I remember my dad graduated college in 1957. I said, Dad, why, why did you, you, got, you graduated college, but you were in the Army for two years and you, you made it to specialist. With, and he's like, well, I had to do my two years. I had a job waiting on me at Procter & Gamble, so I didn't go through the officer pack, but it was that would have added another two years. And I said, well, what would you think of the Army? He goes, I love my two years. And he, he would go back to that. And it, he said he was exposed to people he would have never met. And I think part of that polarization we're having right now is everyone is running to their own little tribe. Yeah. And they're not interacting, and that's we tell the we tell the cadets here, and that's why I love this institution. Is I, we have cadets here from all all different states, all different backgrounds, and I say it all the time. What the military does is it 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 takes people from all walks of life and brings them together. They all started the same way, right? Y'all got the same haircut, same uniform, <laughs> went through the same process, and all earned the same title, cadet. And you know, I so if it's not, I wouldn't do a draft just for the, you know, the military, but I would give a person four choices, whether it be teach, whether it be, you know, um, like an AmeriCorps where you're going out and fixing something or the Peace Corps or you can do the military, but you do something. And to me, I think there should be a price to admission, right? I think everyone would, would feel more American. Well, hold on to that microphone. I'm going to make you jump into this next round. 
What is the one thing you did in your military service that you're most proud of? But quickly. Uh, going to Desert Steel Shield Storm and bringing back every Marine. The work that I did helped create what is now Iron Dome and other kinds of defense systems like that. Proud of having deployed and, and served with you, sir, but, but certainly the number one thing is to stand as a 22-year-old in front of a platoon of infantry and, uh, and lead them successfully and bring them all back home. HR? Serving along extremely courageous uh, soldiers in the 3rd Cavalry Regiment and, and liberating a region of Iraq from uh, Al-Qaeda. I had to pick, so I hope that I changed the lives of some of the people that I, that I serve with and that, that worked for me in my time in the service. Hundred percent, I think. It, but if I was if I was going to pick one specific instance, I was the reset officer for First Brigade, First Cav, uh, to get them ready for their 2010 deployment. No, sorry, 12 deployment to Iraq, and so I was in charge of getting 32,000 pieces of equipment through the reset process, everything from gas masks and weapons to tanks, and it and it's actually the, the last job I had before I left the service, and it made me feel like they were in a good position. Their equipment was ready to go. They, it was safe. Um, as I was leaving the door, I was sort of able to check that off and say, um, say, say I had done that, done, done that once to put a job. Great. Very last, I promise. Megan, what is the one thing you want civilians to know about serving in the military? It's life-changing. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely a different person. I have a different level of empathy and understanding for people who have come from different places. I think um, that is completely true. I was exposed to people that I had never worked with or been around or shared goals with. And um, it has set me on a path, uh, a different path than I would have walked otherwise. And so I think the military is not all bad and it's much of it is great and very sort of focusing for people it's just tremendously rewarding and you make amazing friends it's a great foundation no matter what you want to pursue in life it's not a pause in your life and you are welcome Stu, we can get opportunity you have opportunity abounds to lead to see experiences see countries test yourself there are so many opportunities that you have in the military that you will not be afforded um, unless you try it. So with that, I wanna thank Valley Forts. Thank you all for taking your evening to sit here and listen to these veteran stories. Tomorrow's Veterans Day. And what I ask you to do is instead of just saying, thank you for your service, ask a veteran, what'd you do? How'd it feel? Why'd you join? sit and listen to a veteran story. And if you're looking for veteran stories, I recommend um, Sebastian Junger's um, uh, Philanthropy Veteran Town Hall. Uh, I think it's called Vets Town Hall. You can go online. There are Vets Town Halls all over the United States where veterans are simply standing up and telling their stories. And a lot of those videos are going online. So take a minute, listen to the stories, and thank you all for coming out to our second of our Town Hall series.